Father, first we want to lift up the people who have lost loved ones in Maui. We ask that you would bring along believers that would bring wisdom and comfort and that you would give those believers who speak to those who are suffering loss the ability to remain silent when necessary and just weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. I pray also that you would give us insight into suffering and into the message in Acts chapter 20 and everything that Paul did in those few verses that we will look at. In Jesus' name, amen. So why doesn't God stop the suffering, the crime, and the violence? I just saw this morning a news report, and somebody filmed it. They recorded it inside of a Nordstrom, and 30 people went in there and ransacked a Nordstrom, just pulling everything out, dragging some of the displays just right through the doors, just mayhem going on. And this is a common sight, especially in California, but even going across the country. And the reason that is, I think you know, is they decriminalized theft. You can steal up to $950 and not be prosecuted as a felony. It's only a misdemeanor. That was the biggest mistake that ever could have happened. And I think that was by the initiative process that that went through. And also the fact that we allow homeless to be on the street. And that was caused by a ruling from a judge that said, you cannot remove somebody from the street if you don't have a bed for them. That is legislating from the bench that is saying, this is now a law. And that's why there's so many homeless. I forget how many dollars we have spent, maybe $9 billion on homeless, and it's only succeeded in doubling the homeless population. I also believe that it is a crime against humanity to allow somebody to remain on the street who is mentally ill or drug abusing. We are not doing them any favors whatsoever. And we need to speak up when given the opportunity and say, this is wrong. Some people are incapable of taking care of themselves and we're turning them over and people are dying every day from homelessness out there. And I believe that is not compassionate. And so as a country, I think we get to need to get the mindset of no, don't help these people who are out there. And it has always been my contention that if somebody is asking for money on the street, don't give them the money, help them to get in the shelter, give them food if they need it, but do not give them money. Even the city of El Cajon has decided this is not a good thing. If you drive to the exit of Main Street in El Cajon heading west on Highway 8 and you come off that exit, there's a sign right there that says, do not help the homeless. Another one at 2nd Street when you get off heading west. There's a sign right there that says, do not support panhandling. They get it. They understand all you're doing is perpetuating this crisis, and I believe it is a crisis in our country, in our city, in the county, and there's violence with that, stabbings and uh, just the drug abuse, overdoses, all of those things are symptomatic of us just backing up and saying, no, we don't need God, that's the root of it. We don't need God, we'll govern ourselves, and look how we're doing. We're not doing very well at all. So to give a simplistic answer to why doesn't God stop the suffering? The simplistic answer is suffering is a result of the fall and God allowing us to exercise our free will while existing in a perpetual state of sin. 
That's the number one reason. We have this free will, but our wills are corrupted. The things we want continually are evil. And I can, I can give you a, a light example of this. If, for instance, you like a particular food, whatever the food is, and when you eat it, the tendency for everyone is to eat until you're full or maybe even stuffed if you really like the food. I am guilty of this. You know, if I have a steak or ice cream or something like that in front of me, I want to eat until I'm satisfied and maybe even a little more. Have you ever walked away from a Mexican restaurant and gone, I'm so full? Have you ever done that? I've done that on a semi-regular basis. And then what do I do? I have to suffer because I can't eat for a while to get rid of the fat that I just accumulated because I ate too much at the Mexican restaurant. I mean, it's, it's just a vicious cycle we get in. I'm going to love it when we get to heaven. We're all going to be thin and trim and everybody's going to have muscles and nails are going to be perfect and women's hair is just going to flow. It's going to be a wonderful place. They won't need any mascara because their eyes are just going to be so beautiful and big. That's the way it's going to be. And everybody that's on the earth are going to look at those who have been glorified. They're like, look how good you look today. And you can go, I know. Well, you won't say that because you're going to be humble, right? You're just, oh, thank you very much. That's how the kingdom will be in the future. But until then, we struggle with different things. Traffic is another one. You've heard me talk about traffic so many times. And, and the way that people drive, not me, but the way that everybody else drives out there. And we criticize them for how they drive and where they get their license at Kmart. Or, you know, you, you have different things that you say. And our thoughts are evil continually. And, and God would not have that. God would not have us have evil thoughts continually. When will that change? It will not change until we get our glorified bodies and our new nature. So because of our fallen nature, we have a tendency to make a lot of mistakes and those mistakes are not good at the very least and they are evil at the very worst. We act in a self-interested fashion that if it benefits me, then it's okay. And that's the root of it. It's, it's selfishness. So that's the personal aspect that we have of that. But also, we live in a nature in the world in the universe that is also corrupted because of the fall in Romans chapter 8 verse 19 it says the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into a glorious freedom of the children of God. When it talks about this bondage to decay, that's the second law of thermodynamics. It's the law of entropy. It's heat loss. Everything goes from order to disorder or order to randomness. Everything disintegrates. You give the earth enough time, if there were no people on it, every single building, road, whatever has been built, would go away. And eventually, the earth is going to be destroyed. When the sun supernovas, it's going to destroy all the planets in the solar system. And the entire universe, if you give it enough time, it's going to go out like blowing out a candle and leaving the wick smoldering, and there will be heat death in the universe. That's what it is. Everything is going from order to disorder. 
all the atoms are going to their lowest state of existence. No longer will they be held together. They will stop spinning. The electrons will stop spinning around the nucleus and it will just cease to exist. That is what has happened to our creation as also a result of the fall. So if you put a person who has fallen in a creation that has fallen, what do you think you're going to get the equal as? It's going to be a disaster, a complete disaster. To illustrate this a little more, in Japan, now most of Japan is Buddhist. They don't believe in a God, so to speak. They believe in enlightenment and going up to the next enlightenment phase. And it's just kind of strange when you look into it a little bit. But when the tsunami happened and the Fukushima nuclear power plant was exposed and all that radiation got out there, they realized that after surveying the area, they found these boundary stones that were set up hundreds of years ago by other Japanese. Maybe you heard me talk about this before that had carved in the stones, big stones. These stones were like four or five feet across and maybe six feet high. And it said right on there, do not build below this stone because of tsunamis. They had had one before and they ignored that. And that's why there was such tremendous loss of life. So first it was the creation that had the tsunami that came in. And then it was the people who were fallen that made a decision. Oh, I don't believe that stone. I'm going to build below this level. And that's where they put the Fukushima power plant as well. So you see, you put those two things together and you have disaster. In the forest, you know, here in California, they don't really manage the forest very much. And I just drove through the forest and there's some sections you look at and they're just thick with dead material. What do you think that portends? That portends a massive fire that's going to go through there. They could stop that or curtail it by getting rid of the dead material. Just like they made me do when I went up there. Get rid of that dead stuff on the property up there. Okay, I'll get rid of the dead stuff. Why? Because of fire. And we refuse to do that because we call it climate change and nature and the natural processes and we don't subdue the earth. The Bible tells us to subdue the earth. When it talks about subduing the earth, what does that mean? Take all the energy you need and get the earth into shape. Don't let it just run ransack over nature, so to speak. Don't, don't let it just fall into disrepair. We, are, we were given the charge to manage the earth, to tend the garden. And there are people who say, no, just let it be in its natural state. What happens to you and I if we're in our natural state? I mean, we're running around with no clothes on. We're we're thinking things that are bad and doing things that are bad. It just becomes anarchy. We cannot be in our natural state. And God gave us the wisdom to manage the earth because we are capable of doing so in a good fashion, being a good husbandman, so to speak, one who takes care of a property. We don't have to destroy everything that is out there, and we can manage it well. I think it's possible for us to do that, and we have done it. But just to let things go natural, God says, no, no, that is not good. Subdue the earth is what God said in the book of Genesis. So if you combine the personal choice with the involuntary fall of creation, you get disasters. That's why disasters take place. And with the fires in Maui, is it the directed energy wave or whatever it is they're calling it? It doesn't matter. 
because we know that we're fallen. We know that there's going to be loss of life. We know there's going to be loss of property just because of the way the earth works. Hurricanes, guess what? They happen. Don't you hear every year, oh, it's going to be a much worse hurricane season than it has ever been before. Oh, we're heading towards global warming when it's been much hotter before. You know, they used to plant crops on Greenland. How do you think the people of Greenland would feel if they could plant a crop? You know, they, they'd be happy that they wouldn't have to have a ship come in and bring all the vegetables if they could plant their own vegetables there. And some people say, well, the water's going to rise. Water rises all the time. Look at Venice. Venice is sinking. And what do they do? They keep on building dikes and they keep on adding the gondolas. And okay, we adjust. It's not going to happen overnight until the tribulation. Then it will happen overnight. But the stuff that we're experiencing now, the earth is not going to be destroyed. God told us how it's going to be destroyed the next time. It's Second Peter chapter 3, 9, I think it is. It's going to be destroyed by fire. See, First Peter, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. That's where it says God's going to destroy it by fire. Everything is going to be burned up. Until then, we have the rainbow that tells us it's not going to be flooded ever again. You're not going to have to worry about your life. The sea level's rising, whatever. I invite you, go out and shoot a deer and get some venison and plant the ground and build houses, do all those things because we know when the earth is going to be destroyed and it's at least 1,007 years away. Now, if you know how I got to that number, you're a Bible scholar. If you're going, how did he get to 1,007 years? You have the tribulation and the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, and it's probably just a little bit more than that if Christ came back today. You know, so it, we know it's going to be that long, and we don't have to worry about dying because of the earth or because the Van Allen belts are going to disappear or the magnetic forces in the earth are going to shrivel up. We don't have to worry about any of that stuff. The world, those who are of the world have bought into a program that is detrimental to society. And we need to stand up and just say, this is stupid. Why are we doing this? You know, this is doing nothing but leading to mayhem and chaos. And we're going to watch the movie as it plays out. And we need to be those standards, those benchmarks that say, this is the way to go. This is the way to correct it. And let people get upset and have their hair on fire, but you just be the beacon. Say, this is the way to correct it. This is what God told us to do. Now, as you look at the suffering, you have to ask yourself the question, is there any good that can come out of suffering? And there's several different ways you can look at it. Say you have a big tumor on your leg and it's impeding how you walk. You have to get injured and suffer while you have it, but also to have it removed, right? So you go to the doctor, he goes, this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me. Slices you open, takes out the tumor, closes it back up. It's all benign. It's all good. You totally get healed. Or what about a hip that wears out or an elbow or a knee? There's a lot of suffering involved in that because we're subject to the laws of decay. But to fix it, what do you have to do? You have to go through a lot of suffering in order to fix it. Once you fix it, whoa, look at this. I have a new knee. It's wonderful. And I can go out and I can walk now. And things are better. But you have to endure the suffering in order to get to the end result. Take rearing of children, so to speak. Now, the Bible, it 
is pretty clear. It endorses corporal punishment, not capital punishment, corporal punishment. Corporal punishment is where, well, you get a little swat, right? You're doing something wrong, you get a little swat. Even scripture says, Proverbs chapter 23, verse 13, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish punish him with a rod, he will not die. Punish him with a rod and save his soul from death. Which means if you employ discipline for a child, it will help them, but they will consider it very unpleasant at the time. They will suffer under it. And by the way, when it comes to discipline of children, it ought to only be employed for outright rebellion. It should never be employed because of weakness or lack of understanding on the part of the child. The child just doesn't understand. It's when a child, you tell them something to do, and they look at you and say, no, I won't. And you might give them a second chance. And if they don't repent of that second chance, I'm talking to little children. I'm not talking about a 16-year-old. Don't spank your 16-year-old. If, if it's a little child, small child, they get it. And how often do you have to paddle? So to speak? You probably don't even have to. Just make the threat. And the threat, it just sends them into apoplexy, you know, where they, they don't know what to do, screaming down the hallway, screaming Mimi and throwing themselves on the bed. And that's how you can install discipline. They understand there are consequences to their action. God says, discipline the children. Don't let the children go in their natural direction. And that's being promoted even today. Just let the child be free. Let them be a girl if they're a boy. And if, if, what, what are you talking about? Train them up. What the Bible has to say. And if we do that, it will benefit everyone who is around us. Now, we are instructed to instill self-discipline in our children through disciplining. And also, what about suffering and violence in the world? Can any good come from it? About 40 years ago, and Patty might remember this, 40 years ago, we were attending Calvary Chapel, San Diego with Pastor Mike McIntosh. It was either 40 years ago. After that, it was Dave Riley at Calvary La Mesa, and then we started the church, came out here. But when we were with uh, Pastor Mike McIntosh, I was serving in the church. That's where I met Patty. She said, marry me. And I said, okay, I will. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm the one that asked. But anyhow, when, when we were going there, they had a New Year's Eve event at the Civic Center down in downtown San Diego. Instead of going to a New Year's Eve party where you just don't know what's going to happen, and he said, come on down to the Civic Center. We're going to have a special event, some worship down there, some guest speakers. And we said, okay. So we went down there and we were there till past midnight. But when we got there, there was this young man named Daniel. And Daniel was from China. And Daniel brought his mother, who was also from China. And Mike told us that Daniel was going to interpret for his mother that was, uh, she wasn't an elder or anything in the church, but she was important in the church in China. And at that same time, if you know his name, there was Brother Andrew. And Brother Andrew would get people in a clandestine fashion to carry in hundreds of Bibles into China. And there were miraculous stories where they'd get into the airport and they would have a suitcase full of Bibles, just packed, and they didn't allow Bibles in China. 
And so everybody is getting searched. Everybody's getting searched. And they simply say, let's pray that God allows them to overlook the suitcase. And it would happen time and time again. They would just run the suitcase. Oh, get out of here. You know, and they run the suitcase through and it'd be filled with Bibles. And they would take hundreds, if not thousands of Bibles to the people in China. During that time, there were a few million Christians in China. A few million. Now, when we were at this event and Daniel's mother got up to speak, you could tell that Mike had intended her to speak for maybe five minutes. She ended up speaking the whole time. Mike would get up a little bit like, oh, in right. Oh, she's going on. So he'd sit back down. You know, we'd kind of chuckle a little bit, but she was just on fire. She was going and Daniel was doing his job and she was talking about the persecuted church in China and how that's adding to the benefit of the Christian Chinese. And so in 2011, they did some research to find out how many Christians there were. This is a little bit later. How many Christians there were in China? And they felt there were maybe at that time, in 2011, 67 million. Right now, it is approaching 300 million Christians in China. Now, why are they growing at an exponential rate? Patty and I were talking about this. There was an article that came out that they they have been unsuccessful in stopping the growth of Christianity in China. So what they have done is reprinted the Bible and say that Jesus was a sinner. There are several verses they have changed in there to kind of disrupt what the Christians believe. Of course, I'm sure the Christians are onto that, and it's not going to be a real problem. So back in 2011, there were approximately 67 million Chinese Christians there. Today, it's approaching 300 million. What has caused this increase? Well, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party has been ruthless in persecuting the Christians. And because of that, Christianity has increased. The persecution brings increase. And you ask yourself the question, can something so terrible as the persecution of the Christians over in China do anything good? Well, it can, and it has. If Christianity in the United States was to be persecuted, what do you think would happen? At first, I think there would be a separation of the sheep and the goats. Those people who really weren't following Christ that were just there for a social club or whatever, they would fall by the wayside. But then it would expand. And that has always happened where there's persecutions of Christians. So to answer the question, can anything good result from suffering? Yes. Now in the last chapter, in chapter 19 of Acts, remember the silver myth named Demetrius he was worried that he was going to be losing income because so many Christians got saved and they brought their uh, documents and stuff that were like filled with black magic and incantations and amulets and all that and they burned it all and it was worth 138 years of an average laborer's wage and so there was a dramatic change that was taking place in Ephesus. And I told you that Paul was not criticizing the temple to Diana, which I showed you a picture of. He was not doing any of that. He was simply preaching the gospel, which led to a change in the people, which led to a change in the culture. In China, there is now more Christians than there are members of the Communist Party. 
There are 85 million Communist Party members, and like I said, the, there are several statistics. One is, oh, there's definitely 100 million Christians. Another one is that there would be 247 million by 2030. And another one is there's probably 300 million Christians now. And what do you think is going to happen when whole cities become Christian? The Communist Party is just going to drop off. They're not going to be able to succeed. So the person gets changed. The culture gets changed. That's how it's supposed to work. God changes us to affect others, which as a whole changes the culture. It was the city clerk with Demetrius that came in because there was a big riot going on, if you remember the story. And he said, you guys need to stop it. He hasn't cursed our goddess who is over here. He hasn't spoken against the temple. None of that stuff has happened. You need to go home because we could be charged with a riot and that would not be good. And so that rioting that was taking place was a witness to the whole city of the power of God working in the lives of the people who had been witnessed to. So the whole society was being changed. Now, right now, Greece is considered a, a Christian country. It's Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, which is over there. My daughter is actually, my granddaughter, my granddaughter is actually in an airport right now in Athens because missed flights and whatever, but she's in Greece right now. And right north of that is Macedonia. And, and that's where Christendom is really strong in that area. And that's because of what Paul did. Now, I've already told you all this, but Paul also stated All the way down in chapter 20, verse 23. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So what would happen with Paul is he would go to one city. He'd speak there for three weeks, maybe a couple months, and he'd be persecuted and have to move to the next city. This is how God used persecution to move Paul. God will use things like this to move us. He doesn't want us to be stationary. Now, we're supposed to plant in Christendom. And it's good to plant in a church. But if the Lord says, okay, I want you to go do something somewhere else for him. Not because we want to. We want to make sure that God is calling us to a particular direction. Maybe we're supposed to endure suffering, even though we're suffering for a righteous cause. And by the way... Peter talks about this. It's commendable. If you're suffering and you're suffering for doing what's good, that's commendable in the eyes of God. But if you're suffering for doing what's stupid, well, you're stupid. And that's what the Bible says. Just don't do stupid things and you won't suffer for doing these stupid things. And and so we are to look at this idea of suffering, whether it's the fires in Maui or it's the earthquakes and tsunamis or it's what happens in humanity. All of this stuff, God uses that to move us. And so do you say, I'm ready for suffering. No, that's stupid. We, we say, God, whatever you want for my life, I'd prefer not to go through suffering, but if you want me to suffer for your sake, temporarily on this earth, to benefit you and your kingdom and the people that are here, so be it. That should be our outlook on life. If we need to help somebody in some way, let's help them. We might suffer because we don't have as much income because we gave income to somebody else. Whatever the case might be, but use wisdom in these things. Don't just willy-nilly, okay, I'm going to help. I don't know how I'm going to help, but I'm going to help. And you go out and you do something 
stupid. That's the operative word for this message. Don't be stupid, right? And so as we go along, we see that Paul, he was not being stupid. He was being led by the Holy Spirit through the suffering. He went from town to town where he is persecuted. That's what the Holy Spirit told him was going to happen. And so he got comfortable with it. He said, okay, that's going to be just fine with me. Now going on in chapter Acts, verse 20. Paul here offers some encouragement and not chastisement or condemnation to the believers after the Ephesus incident. It says, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them said goodbye and set out for Macedonia, which is just above modern day Greece. If you've heard the name of the city, Kosovo, that is in the area of Macedonia and that's right above Greece. And that's where Paul ended up traveling is in that area. He traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece. And the word that is used here in the Greek for encouragement is parakaleo, and it means uh, to come alongside. The Holy Spirit is referred to as a paraclete, one who comes alongside. So as we're walking, he comes alongside, ministers to us, helps us, encourages us through the word that we have memorized through others, and we walk forward with that encouragement. And that's what Paul did to those walking forward in Ephesus. They needed to be encouraged instead of discouraged because of what had happened. Verse 3 says, where he stayed, excuse me, finally arriving in Greece, where he stayed three months because the Jews made a plot against him just as he was about to sail for Syria. He decided to go back through Macedonia, which means he went north instead of getting on a ship and heading across the Mediterranean back to Syria. And that's all because of a plot to kill him. You see how it works? If you found out there was a plot to kill you and God wanted you to go somewhere else and you found out about the plot, you're going to go where he wants you to go. As long as you say, God, guide me wherever I'm supposed to go, he will do that. that that's how he moves us around. Now, there is this idea of change. You make your plans I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to this city and stay here for a period of time or this state or this country. You make these plans and that's nice. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the Lord determines his steps, the Bible says. There's also a Jewish axiom. Man makes plans and God changes them. And so you can decide you're going to do something, but God has something else in mind, a different plan. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, I'll just recall it here uh, to quote this. It says, after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I had been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. So he made plans to visit Rome, to go to Rome. That was his plan. But in Romans chapter 15, verse 24, we see how he also had plans to go to Spain. It says, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you, you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. So he's speaking to those in the church in Rome. He says, I'm going on to Spain. Verse 25 says, now, however, I'm on the way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. So it was changed. He wanted to go to Spain, but he ends up going back to Jerusalem because the Lord was directing him. 
So it's all because of these plans of persecution to kill Paul, to persecute him, whatever the case might be. Now, it's nice that he was able to do this. Imagine if you were all alone. If you were all by yourself and you say, God, where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? It's never good for a man to be alone. Now, in relation to being married, it says be married. It's good that a man is married. But also, in fellowship, it is not good that you think or anyone thinks that they can maintain fellowship all by themselves. If they say, yeah, I I like to do the potpourri where I go to all these different churches and I just get a little taste, a little feel for each one. I do not believe that is God's will. I believe we are to plant, sink the root deep, Unless God says, okay, I'm uprooting you and I'm taking you somewhere else and we have to go with that. And by the way, whenever you uproot a plant, it damages it. The roots get cut. The plant can go into shock and you have to take care of it, you know, keep it close, the bundle of the roots together. You know, they give you the, um, what do they call the um, uh, bare root roses that you can get packed in sawdust and they cut all the leaves off of the stems and they cut the roots and it it just kind of stays in a stasis during the winter and when you get them you put them in the ground in spring and you fertilize them and they go oh i'm living and it comes back out again well the same thing can happen to us when god takes us cuts the roots off cuts all the leaves off no fruit on you whatsoever you look like a bunch of dried sticks with thorns on it nobody wants to get close to you and you get planted somewhere else and you start thriving and guy goes ah see it's all my plan to get you to go somewhere else but imagine you were with several others would the trip be easier it would be because you would have each other to rely on you know, the old testament talks about uh, with two cords you know the strength but a three-fold cord is not quickly broken that means there's strength in numbers and so if you're going to go somewhere if you're going to do work for god make sure you go with other people don't go alone and this is the case with paul as well in verse four it says here he was accompanied by Sopater, the son of uh, Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Segundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on and waited for us at Troas. Now, there are seven people here, including Luke, who is writing about this, and we don't know if there are other people as well that are involved in this travel. And so, at this time, Paul has some traveling companions. You know, he started out with him and Barnabas. That was it. Then it turned into him and Silas, and Timothy joined later. And, and now he has at least eight people, probably more with them. And they're all encouraged because of the teaching and the miracles that had taken place. And that's how we're supposed to do it. If we go out, go with at least one person maybe several people, and if you have the chance to go with several people, it will be an encouragement to do whatever you're doing for the Lord. Don't go out alone, and we need that fellowship. Now, verse 6 says, But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now, this is the first day of the week. uh, It's not the Sabbath day. Excuse me, let me read this again, verse 6. But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later we joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. And on verse 7 it says, And on the first day of the week we came together to break bread. Paul spoke 
to the people because he intended to leave the next day. He kept on talking until midnight. Did you catch that? We were so wimpy. We get past a 45-minute message. <sighs> Is he still going on? And, and, and Paul, you know, he, he probably started in the early afternoon and he just kept on talking for a long time. And the people were like, they, they were captivated. I've talked to people who have gone to places like China and given the gospel. Also, Africa is like this too. You start in the morning, like in Uganda, a uh, pastor training center that's over there. You start in the morning and you go all day, eight hours. You break for lunch. You go all day. You eat dinner and they want more. They want you to teach more. And by the end of the day, first day, your throat's a little sore. By the end of a week, your voice is gone. <clears throat> but they, they just want more. They're hungry. And what do we do? Is there a game on today? I I need to put on a roast or whatever the case might be. I have projects around the house. But the people who don't have a lot of the word of God, they are thirsty. They are hungry for it. And this is the first day of the week. Now, what is the first day of the week? Sunday is the first day of the week. Now, we tend to think Monday is the first day of the week. Now, when we go to Israel that we're going to be in a couple of months, <clears throat> on Saturday, it literally shuts down. Nothing in Jerusalem, especially. It's totally shut down. They put up barricades where nobody can drive through neighborhoods. And if you do, you could be in trouble. There may be a rock concert happening to your car. But if you do that, people get upset. And then Sunday is just like Monday here. All the cars are going, the honking on the streets, all of that. That's how it transpires in Israel. But on the Sabbath day, which is Saturday, or in Spanish, Sabado, uh, that is the Jewish day of rest. But for us, it is Sunday. And the reason for us that it is Sunday is that's the day that the Christians started meeting because Jesus rose on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. So the Jews still worship on Saturday, the Sabbath. It's one of the Ten Commandments. But we are not under the law. The law was, and some people would start arguing, what do you mean? Which one of the Ten Commandments are you going to throw out? Jesus is our Sabbath day's rest. We rest all the time in him, not just one day. And he said, take a day and rest. Now, there is a Sabbath day's principle that if you can take a nap on one day of the week that you consider special, do it. It's good to work six days and seventh. Take a break. Sometimes you can't. But worship all of those days. That's the idea. And the Jews said, no, on this day we worship. Only this day. Well, you could offer sacrifices elsewhere, but that was the important day. For us, it's every day. And we worship on Sunday as a group because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Sabbath was given to a Jewish people under the law of Moses. And some people, especially, you've heard me talk about this before, the Hebrew Roots Movement. They say that you have to keep the Old Testament law, the practices, the dietary practices there, all of the requirements for, you go to Deuteronomy and to um, Exodus and Leviticus, it, it talks about what you're supposed to do, and they say, well, we have to do that as well. And you can't. 
First, you can't do the sacrifices. There's no temple. And it was supposed to be a temple to do the sacrifices. So they sacrifice elsewhere. They don't sacrifice at all. And they go to a synagogue, but they never go to the temple. And there's so many laws that surround the temple worship that are supposed to be followed. But you can't because there's no temple. Now, there will be a temple, according to Ezekiel. We know that a temple is going to be rebuilt. But for us, again, it's any day. Romans chapter 14, verse 5 says, One man considers one day more sacred than the other. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Which he's saying, Paul is saying in Romans here, whatever you want to do, if you have one day that you want to worship, okay, go ahead. If you have every day that you want to consider special, okay, go ahead. Whatever you want to do is supposed to be between you and God. And we are not supposed to judge those who keep a special day. Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, new moon, celebration, or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So if you want to keep a special day, great. Don't judge somebody else because they want to keep a special day. To give an example, Seventh-day Adventism. I believe them really, after all these years, to be a cult. But they do worship on Saturday. Okay, if you want to worship on Saturday. Most of them would say, you sinner, you worship on Sunday. You're not following the Old Testament law. And, and there would be a bit of contention that could take place there. Now, that's because of a misinterpretation of Scripture. How often does that take place? More often than I'd like to admit. For instance, there are misinterpretations on the Scripture when it comes to the use of spiritual gifts or the imposition of certain behaviors like dress, diet, circumcision, and celibacy. I can remember... A guy coming to a men's uh, conference up in Anaheim saying that men should be single. It's like, are you nuts or what? And all of these men, there's a Calvary Chapel conference, all these men just pounced verbally on this guy. Uh, Bobby Bible, I think it was his name. And, and there's misinterpretations of scriptures all the time. And we want to make sure we're not guilty of that. Uh, for instance... I want to give you this one. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, you know at the end of the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 16, verse 16, there's one particular church, a denomination which is out there that thinks that they are the only true church based on scripture. And you say, what would that scripture be? It'd be Romans chapter 16, verse 16. And you'll know which church it is as soon as I read it. It says, greet one another with a holy kiss as, or excuse me, all the churches of Christ send greetings. The churches of Christ, the church of Christ believes that they are the only one true church because it's named in the scripture. This is not a noun church of Christ. This is not meant to be that it is a title for a church it's a misinterpretation of scripture it simply means to refer to all churches that are under the headship of christ but they take it to mean the churches of christ that's the only one true church and all the other churches are false churches that's just what's the operative word of the day stupid interpretation that's exactly what that is And, and people do that all the time like 
uh, what's another one you've heard me talk about? Men wearing hats in church. <laughs> the Church of Christ also says that women can't ever cut their hair. I'm, I'm finding all this out because I know somebody who's attending a, a Church of Christ and they're coming back. And I go, what? Are they? Oh, man. They're, they're no military service. They're pacifists. You know, it's just bizarre things that come out of the scriptures that people think it says. So please, if you're unsure about an interpretation, seek it out. Read commentaries. Talk to people. There's no private interpretation of Scripture. And we're supposed to help each other and sharpen each other. And by the way, whenever you uh, talk about doctrine with people who don't agree with you on doctrine, there's going to be sparks. Just like the, uh, the little tidbit before the service started. God will give you wisdom. But there are strong beliefs that people hold to that are not scripturally based at all and when you point out the fact that it's not scripturally based they what i didn't know that. remember the, a couple of weeks ago i told you about tim the mormon i said you know there's no marriage in heaven and he's a mormon you get married in the church to be sealed forever in the celestial kingdom in heaven right and i told him there's no marriage in heaven both in luke and matthew it says there's no marriage in heaven and what he had never heard that. And so that, that's just a small spark. But I'm going to go back and talk to him and say, Tim, what's up? Hey, how about that marriage thing we talked about? And see what he has to say. You know, so we can do it using wisdom without causing suffering or tribulation. God will give all of us wisdom when to speak and when to remain silent. I have five minutes here. Verse 8 says, There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus. Eutychus, the name means fortunate. Who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. And when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Now, who wrote this? The physician Luke. He would know if somebody is dead. So he's dead. He wasn't mostly dead. He was dead. By the way, that comes from a movie. In case you don't know, you can look it up. Verse 10. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man. And by the way, this word for young man, you think in your mind, it's probably like a teenager or something. A young man with this word in the original Greek could be up to 40 years old. So it could be a 40-year-old man up in the window that fell asleep. Just like normal days on church. You know, people they get the message and they can fall asleep. But fortunately, that's why we're all in the first floor. If somebody wants to fall over, they can do that. Verse 11. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate after talking until daylight. Not just midnight. He talked all night long. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. I think so, because his name is Fortunate, right? They're greatly comforted because Paul prayed for him. He rose from the dead. This is similar to what took place with Elijah and Elisha, which I'll cover next week. They had these same things happen, and it was only to establish God's word. Paul spoke. God interrupted it by a death and a resuscitation. And do how many people do you think listened after that? They were tell us more what's going on. This is a miracle that happened in their midst. 
So whether it's a miracle that's taking place and God is moving or God moves in a clandestine manner where suffering is happening and it moves somebody else somewhere and they bring encouragement to somebody else. Uh, I, I'm going to close with this. You guys know what the butterfly effect is? You've probably heard of it. It's this idea that a butterfly flaps its wings in Asia causes a wind current to move a leaf, to move a stick, to move a tree that falls and it just goes and it causes something big in Hawaii or in Alaska. It's the butterfly effect. God can take you and cause you to just breathe the little wind, the wind of the spirit into somebody's ear. They hear the message. It takes root. They become a disciple make a disciple, more disciples, a whole renaissance, a whole breakout, a revival happens as a result of you just breathing something small into somebody's ear. That's the butterfly effect. You can look it up, the definition of that. May God give you wisdom as you're walking in this life. When you see suffering, walk with understanding through the suffering, whether it's you or somebody else. But also know God works in mysterious ways. His ways are as high above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. And we cannot comprehend or even begin to understand why he moves the way he does. So may you have peace which passes understanding as you seek to serve him even in the midst of difficulty if you experience that. Let's pray. Father, we... We thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul and his faithfulness. We thank you for the people that were around him and assisted him in ministry. And the fact that you did miracles as you had him speak your word, establish your word through the miracles of resuscitating somebody. Father, may you use us in that way. May we be that breath, that wind to bring encouragement like Paul did to the people in Ephesus. Or just continue to walk in the faithfulness that you call us to. That we would not stumble or fall or draw back. That we would always keep our hands to the plow moving forward in you. In Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Please stand.